You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is On Principle, Challenges in Jewish Education. And uh, I have to say that this week <laughs> or this episode, I am extremely, extremely honored uh, to have Rav Yitzchak Adlerstein uh, joining us. Uh, Rav Yitzchak is the Director of Interfaith Affairs for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, uh, which is its, its main headquarters is in Los Angeles, but Rav Yitzchak is actually joining us from Yerushalayim, Yerakadosh, so thank you so much. It's always a schuz to be connected there to Israel in any way, shape, or form. Rav Yitzchak. <laughs> um, that was your cue to say something, but it's all right. I'll, Except I'll, that the screen froze. Okay. Unfortunately, that's what it is when we're doing things from thousands of miles away. Um, thank you so much again. And, you know, to, to, to call you just the, um, the director of interfaith affairs really is, is your, your CV would probably take pages if you probably listed everything that you've done in terms of yeah, please give, give me a break. I'm, I am, uh, you may be happy that I'm on, but I am awed by your presence. <laughs> true from the first time that I met you with Tikva okay. years ago, uh, and I was so happy when we uh, um, picked up the uh, the trail again because you have become one of my go-to people to uh, find sources for things that the average guy in my neighborhood doesn't really know about. But That's one of the advantages of being terminally unemployed is that you have time to research stuff and find things because otherwise, because yeah. most people have real jobs that they're doing things. But thank you. Again. Baruch, who knows who to keep unemployed. <laughs> so let me just give you a little bit of a, of, you know, again, when I hear Wiesenthal, um, you know, I, I guess my first exposure to it, and you'll pardon this little aside, uh, I, I, I was in Neri Yisrael, and one of the things in Neri Yisrael that was very difficult to get hold of were secular books. Um, uh, you had to use the Neri Yisrael library. So you couldn't really go to the, to, the, to the public library at all. And if you had them, those, that was contraband, just bringing it in. So there was a somewhat, I don't know how it happened, but somehow someone um, was able to subscribe to the Book of the Month Club, where they would send you, if you remember, for one cent, they would send you like four or five books, and then they would keep on sending it to you. So one of, it was either myself or someone very close to me, and a book arrived incredibly, and it was not uh, grabbed by the, you know, by Rabbi Tendler and company. It got through, and it was Ira Levin's uh, uh, novel, The Boys from Brazil. And I was probably about 14 years old or 15 years old when the book showed up. And I devoured this book. I just, oh, this is a great book. And it was so, you know, and of course, many people know about it through the film that was made with the Lawrence Olivier. And it's about a, um, a, a Nazi hunter. Uh, and and it's they, they do not use uh, Simon Wiesenthal's name, but this idea that there was this Nazi hunter who's hunting Nazis and and nobody uh, he's already come out over bottle, but he's he's able to find uh, whether it was you know this this great plot to clone Hitler it was just a, just it had cloned everything in it, and it got me interested. Is there such a person? And I started researching this and discovering that there was such a person uh, called that, that this book was based on, Simon Wiesenthal. And he was the man who was waving the flag to, we must 
still never forget and find these Nazis. They're still out there. And it's interesting that about that period, about 75 or so, his star rose incredibly. And then I, you know, it, 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 I discovered uh, his book. I think it's called The Sunflower. I think that's his book. I well, he had, he had several books. Probably the most famous is, is Sunflower. Right. And, and the dilemma that he spoke about. And, and, and I, I discovered there was this person who had for years been somewhat laboring in obscurity. And then an explosion of fame occurred for this man and his cause and what he was doing. And eventually... I don't know what year it, it began, but then we had the Simon Wiesenthal Institute opening in, in Los Angeles. And uh, what was incredible about it was, from our perspective, was that there was a yeshiva connected to it as well, right? There, there was, it wasn't just a, an institute to, to remember the Holocaust. It also was dedicated, there was a yeshiva that was, I think, I think YULA was connected to it, correct? Right. But I wouldn't say it was connected to it. The initial intention was that the yeshiva was going to be the Iker and the Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, as it was called back then, was going to be a clever way of roping in people's interests, including financial interests. And that was was the the brainchild of Rabbi Marvin Heyer, correct? Yes, Yes, it was. What he never anticipated was that the modest little uh, exhibit that he put on in the building, uh, uh, for which the grand finale was going to be a window where you could look down <laughs> the Bachram learning in the base medrash and, and have people be told, this is our answer to Hitler. This is how we're going to sustain Jewish civilization. Well, uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has uh, a sense of humor and other plans, and that little, modest little exhibit grew into something far, 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 far bigger, while the yeshiva, after a while, did not do so well. And uh, it became first, indeed, a center uh, relating to Holocaust issues, Holocaust preservation, rights of survivors, But then after not so many years, it morphed into a world-class and global human rights organization that dealt with issues having nothing to do with the Holocaust. But really, it was the idea of the Jewish conscience uh, applied to issues, especially where it was felt that there was some kind of overlap. So it, it grew and it grew and it grew much to the chagrin of the non-Orthodox community in Los Angeles and eventually to the chagrin of some of the power brokers and some, some other organizations that didn't, they weren't comfortable with the Orthodox having anything to do with their hallowed turf. But um, Rabbi Heyer is very smart. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, who I work with uh, more more directly, is uh, an absolute uh, genius in in political strategizing and in making friends, making decisions about the course of conduct for for an institution and for others as well. Um, And we wound up with with a global footprint. We have offices in Chicago and Miami and in Paris and in South America and uh, and now uh, in Yerushalayim as well, where we're building 
our second museum, which is, uh, you know, COVID set us back, but hopefully should be up and running in about a year and a half. Wow. So it's a really an incredible story, especially, um, you know, as you say, it was initially hatched to be a, a again, I'll just put it on the table, like a fundraising ploy to keep a yeshiva going. And, right. and as you say, it's now sort of rivals, like it's almost like a Yad Vashem, it's like it rivals, like when you want to say the, the institutions that, and, uh, that, that represent um, not, not forgetting the horrors of, of all uh, types of genocide, the, Wies- the Weisenthal, oh, did I say it wrong again? The Simon uh, Weisenthal Institute becomes the, uh, one of the main players. But you know what, I just before you get into your specific role, which I really want to, uh, you know, sort of tease mm-hmm. out of you, uh, you, you mentioned how there's been a morphing uh, from the particulars of the Euro- destruction of the European Jewry to include whether it was the, uh, the, the genocide in Armenia that, that, that's making headlines just recently, or Darfur, or Rwanda, or any sort of man's inhumanity to man, to, to use that off-use phrase. And, 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 and that's, I think, really what's happening in many of these Holocaust uh, museums, right? They're, 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 I think even in Washington, I believe there is a special wing for that, right? I, I think that's I think that's happening almost everywhere. This idea of of you know it's it's almost you know identity politics everywhere except for us. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it's like it's like you know, uh, you know you know our specific pain needs to actually now be transferred and used by and 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 the same sort of outrage and I guess even. Um, educational uh, techniques that we have perfected or you've people perfected in terms of teaching the Holocaust, that now needs to be presented for other uh, terrible uh, types of situations. And it needs to be that that's sort of seen as one of your uh, what you need to do. Correct. You need to. It goes it goes a little beyond that. And part of that has to do with Simon himself. Um, By the way, before I tell you about that, to me, the single most impressive anecdote about Simon is uh, is the following. Simon was not from, you know, he came from, from Vienna, not a hotbed of uh, Frumkite, exactly, uh, at least not before the war. Yeah. And um, Tell that to the Wiener Ruv. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. it was a small part of the population. Yeah, that's right, know. yeah. So, uh, he... Um, he had a successful career in architecture before the war. And shortly after the war, there was a get-together of some people who had survived, some of his old, uh, his old clique, his old group. And they all recounted how they were putting their, their previous life back on course again. Uh, the lawyer was a lawyer again, and the doctor was a doctor again. And it's, it's like there was a six-year gap when life came to a standstill and they circulated between labor camps. But after the war, they set about to reclaim the rest of their lives. And then they turned to Simon and they said, like, we don't get it. Why, why don't you do the same? You were, you were a, a, an up and coming architect. Why are you busy burying your head in, in documents about the whereabouts of different Nazis? So he said, he said, you know, after 120 years, I don't know if he said 120 years, but he said at some point, 
I'm going to leave this world and I'm going to go upstairs. And there are going to be six million who are going to say to me, Simon, what did you do that we should not be forgotten? I want to have an answer for them. So for a person who wasn't uh, halakhically uh, into uh, full observance, it's just such a beautiful reaction from the neshama. And such a... I, I, I agree. But what's interesting, though, is that that answer that he gave in that period would be considered politically incorrect today. And the reason is, is because, you know, you want to hunt the Nazis. You know, I understand that you want to uh, keep the, the horror of the Holocaust alive. But we know, and especially as, you know, uh, knowing that it was all about getting that last Amalek out, finding them, being noikim, um, you know, not, not letting that person live the last years of his life on some beach in Paraguay. But or I don't know if Paraguay has beaches, but you know what I mean. But basically... <laughs> but, the, but, but it wasn't. Yeah. For Simon, it was not vengeance at all. And he was not looking for vengeance. He was looking for ways to ensure that what happened would not be shelved, would not be put under, put under a rug, would not be forgotten. And he realized, he had the vision to realize that the only way that this would be done would be through high-profile trials. Indeed, nobody cared that much. I mean, they knew there was such a thing. But what put the Holocaust on the map? I see. In- World conscious. It was the Eichmann trial. I see. So, so it isn't so much to 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 get the Mianya. No, it was not. There was, it was not so to much to get him Holocaust. to punish him, but to, no. to it was. It's almost like like to make a trask from then in Yiddish to make a a trial make such a big deal about it. It puts it back Correct. in the consciousness. Correct. That's 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 Correct. already a lumdus <laughs> And uh, there's another lumdus that was also important when when Rabbi Ayer started. The idea of a Holocaust center did not bear the name of Simon Wiesenthal. Then he thought, this would be really great if we could get him to give his name. So he traveled to to Vienna and and met with him. And uh, Simon said, listen, if you want my name, I'm not interested in giving. If you really want my name, it means that you have to abide by my vision. And that is that you have to be an organization that does and doesn't just create uh, hallmark cards, but that you're going to do things to try to bring down the level of global, of global hatred. You have to be aggressive about it. He wasn't into the stance that most organizations were taking at the time. We still are today, uh, one of the most aggressive, perhaps the most aggressive of the large organizations. And today we are the largest organization, membership organization in North America, Jewish membership organization in North America with over 400,000 paying, paying, let me emphasize the word, paying membership families. That's big. And that means we have clout. And it means that when foreign dignitaries pass to LA, they feel that it is, Important to stop by the Museum of Tolerance there. The Museum of Tolerance has become a meeting place for heads of state, for political players of all, of all stripes. And to the credit of, of, uh, of Rabbi Heyer, although the, we have a huge, huge, huge budget and our museum 
uh, in Yerushalayim is going to cost close to 300 million to finally uh, to finally open the stores. But um, Rabbi Haya's only interest, at least from what I've been able to see for the decades that I've been involved, is to use the power that he carefully put together for one purpose alone. And that was to increase the safety and security of the Jewish people, Bechlal, and and the Jewish state, Bifrat. That's so, so even though it's not even though it's a private institution, there is some there's a there's a level of informal connection between the 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 the, the institute uh, and the state of Israel in some ways. Well, they they know we exist and they know what we do and we talk to them all the time and they know we're on their side, which I don't think can be said for uh, J Street and uh, uh, okay. And so, it's, so in other words, uh, yes, so, no, because Yad Vashem, I believe, is officially part of the Israeli government, right? It's an official government uh, institution, correct? So Yad Vashem is a beautiful, beautiful institution. And uh, our museum is not going to compete with Yad Vashem. We don't need another Holocaust museum. Our museum in Yerushalayim is called the Museum of Tolerance. Uh, and we're going to take some of the know-how that we've developed over decades to show people how, among other things, how tolerance... Okay, okay so you, you've, you know, we, we're going to go one direction, but I got I to gotta throw this in. There are people, okay. of course, who... Um, who are extremely critical of the Jewish state that you just mentioned and refer to the Jewish state in, in the ugliest possible terms as an apartheid state, as a, as a state that in many ways is comparable to what the Nazis were doing. And you, you've heard that before, but many of those people who are arguing about that might be your partners in some way in terms of the things that you're stressing in terms of tolerance and in terms of understanding in other places. So you might find yourself actually being connected to people who are, who have a great antipathy towards the Jewish state, but are very much in line with your overall vision of, 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 of tolerance towards others and, and, and trying to stop uh, the type of repression all over the globe. Correct. Yeah. It's a, it's a great fear, but one that, and we have decades of experience, and we have very, very little patience for those who are not on Israel's side. Okay. As, as I forgot who it was who said, you make peace with your enemies. We will talk to anyone, but uh, I won't call any of those partners. Our partners are people who we feel we have confidence in as those who can work with us and understand our goals, sometimes sometimes more extremely than, uh, than, 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 than we do. But we will talk to others. I have a personal relationship with uh, heads of organizations that I personally, personally can't stomach. But to have a personal relationship with them means that every now and then you get to land a little bit of change. You can make a terrible thing a little less terrible. And we, we welcome those opportunities as well. That, that means, though, that for the people who are clearly not on our side, we speak, uh, speak truth to power. Uh, in the old days, when before we wrote off the mainline Protestant denominations in the United States, I used to have to go to church convention after church convention 
uh, some pretty funny stories there, like, uh, you know, like uh, people pointed to the yarmulke and said, um, oh, uh, are, are, are you, uh, are you? Cardinal. <laughs> uh, so I said, no, I'm a cardinal in training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't I let it. I didn't let it stay that way. And then I'm glad that you're touching the elephant in the room because, you know, you are the director of, of interfaith uh, affairs. And I know you, of course, and many other people know you as a teacher, as a person, as a uh, eloquent uh, speaker, a writer, someone who has has done great things in Jewish education, just in terms of your uh, the site that you created, the Cross Current site, a place where students of all ages can find a diversity of intelligent opinions, reasoned and rational, some many times with footnotes and other things uh, that can take you to places. So you're, you know, you, to me, you know, you're a Malamed. You're, you're a Malamed and, and, and a Geshmaka Malamed. Thank you. No okay. better compliment than life. Yeah. But, but your official title, the, the emails that I get from you are, and that's your, so tell me how, you know, you, you have a connection with, members of other faiths do are you involved in teaching are you involved in teaching uh tenets of judaism to christians are you involved in this way because your title seems to suggest that that's part of what you do not just glad handing people and making phone calls it sounds like you're involved in educating the christian world to things about judaism is so tell me about that let me let me step back for a second and tell you about uh how I got involved with this. Uh, I was with the yeshiva for many years. Uh, got phased out, put it that way. And one day they essentially came over to me and said, we're doing vast reorganization. We've got these two institutions, the yeshiva and the Wiesenthal Center. Yeshiva is being mothballed. And the, here, here, there's good news for you, Adlerstein, and bad news for you. The good news is you still have a job. The bad news is you now work for us. <laughs> and overnight, I became the director of interfaith affairs. Why was I director of interfaith affairs? Because of the people. And with the yeshiva, I had a big mouth. And I did. <laughs> I, I occasionally. I'm sure spoke. Rabbi Sauer appreciates uh, your comment. I, that I would much rather be Rabbi Sauer than my <laughs> I should just point out for people, just people know that Rav Nochem Sauer is is one of the most respected Talmud HaKhamim on the West Coast and maybe in all of North America, really. uh, I had the schuss to to meet him when I went for my prova for Rabbi Fassman's koilo. I was there for a whole week and they let me sneak out to see what Eula was about. And I had a very, very geschmackish moves with Rabbi Sauer and, uh, and, and, uh, and of course, it was full of really great, great people. So anyway, just go ahead. I just wanted to throw that in about you. So um, I had a big mouth and I did some writing and I was interested in in hearing the people at the Wiesenthal Center. So I had a little bit more of a casual with them. So they decided that, uh, you know, we're kind of, uh, we're kind of exposed about the other groups. We don't know too much about them and we we, we really have to, I have to figure out what our relationship is, what our niachas is with some of these. And um, basically, at the beginning, I said, look, you know, it seems to be as legitimate a way to make a parnas as anything else. I didn't believe in it. I didn't think that this was part of the hishtadlis that we do, that we do is from a yidden. 
we don't then in we don't involve ourselves in global politics we don't do the the uh the chess playing about uh, who's going to like us and who's not we leave that up to the bar to, 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 to the bariola um i was wrong <laughs> i wound up taking the job and for the first couple of years not really believing in it uh, uh stellar torah personalities who essentially said what are you crazy? Of course, that's our Ishtadas. It's not the Ishtadas for everybody around, but somebody has to do it. And it's important. And not only is it important, it's a matter of sakana for the Jewish people and for the Jewish state that we not lose the friends that we have in the non Jewish community. So I was kind of shocked. Uh, but um, Along the way, I started seeing for myself two things. How important the support of non-Jewish communities was uh, in the establishment of the state, in standing by the state of Israel. We've lost the support of country after country, and we don't know how this current administration is going to, is going to shake out yet. But uh, we hope it won't be as bad as in the days of Barack Obama. But uh, it, it, it worse easily. So, I mean, I, I, so I, I, what I learned is just historically how important they were, how deep the the commitment of some parts of the Christian world were, uh, how many Christians there were who truly put the Jewish people. Judaism and the state of Israel in very, very high regard. Um, so, so it's really interfaith, and I'm going to get to this other point in, in a minute, and I, I think you know where I'm going to go with this, but interfaith primarily means Jews and Christians, right? That's what the interfaith means. Making, uh, right? Connecting with, and, 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 and I'm going to go one more yes step. Yes and no. Lemaisa, practically, we are very focused in what we do. There are other organizations, especially ones that aren't from, for whom interfaith ecumenical activity is the 614th mitzvah, having already discarded the other 613. <laughs> okay. So that, that, that's not us. That's not us. We would never, we sat out, we sat out the... Syrian? The the Syrian. Hmm? The, well, that reared its head before in the world before covid with the syrian refugees in other words there were many non-orthodox rabbis and institutions that raised the flag and said judaism is about welcoming the syrian the uh, refugees and bringing them into our the community and settling them and helping right. them um, right. and I, I, the wiesenthal center was not on the forefront in that in, in that situation correct we were we were in the we were in the forefront for advocating uh, United States effective intervention, which could have saved during the during the Obama years, uh, five hundred thousand deaths and uh, two million refugees internally in uh, in in uh, Syria. I understand. In other words, had there been more aggressive, had Obama's red line really been a red line? Red, red, red line, which the, everybody understood the man and understood that that wasn't going to be. But so, a no-fly zone at one point 
at one point could have accomplished the saving literally of 500,000 lives and without boots on the ground. Instead, we wound up with the limited number of boots on the ground and sacrificing many, many, many people. We, we, have, we try to be sometimes the conscience of, of the world in some regards. We take a very strong position about the, the Uyghurs uh, and what the, what, the, what the Chinese are doing to them, even though the Uyghurs are not our friends. They are, in many regards, extreme Muslims who have no love for Jews. But still, still, they're in concentration camps, literally concentration camps. And, and, and uh, as, as Jews, we, we cannot be silent. But that's off track. As far as Christians go, I became convinced of a change of heart among many Christians. Now, you can say it's naive, and we can discuss Ace of Sonius Yaakov if you want, ready to talk about anything. But from what I saw, <laughs> funny, an, an Adam Godol Ma'od once asked me, said, do you believe that every that every guy hates us. So I got a little nervous because I thought he was going to pull like from Kaidami. And I said, uh, actually, I, I, I don't, I can't. It's not been my experience. And he said, wow, that's a relief. Spent a few years in such and such a community and some of those beautiful people around were, were, were Christians. And I don't believe that they hated us. So there was a, a perception of a change of heart because of the Holocaust largely and because of the leadership of, of um, Pope John. Uh, the, uh, John, John Paul, John Paul II. Paul, but before him, John XXIII, Nostra okay. Day, real changes in the Catholic Church and uh, guilt piled high after the Holocaust by lots of denominations that felt we let down the Jews we actually aided and abetted Hitler by our silence sure. and by the anti-Semitism that our progenitor Martin Luther uh, came up with 500 years ago that was eagerly espoused for the next 500 years. It was somewhat of a change of, of heart. It meant also great, it, it was not, it was not um, Harry Truman's old haberdashery partner who yeah. succeeded in turning in turning him around it was christian phone calls off the hook off the hook yeah. it, it and and that didn't wane with the establishment of the state in some circles but here's the here's the corker the one that you haven't thought of what i saw in dealing with them both the friends and the not so friends in the christian world that i would have thought that it's the it's the, the 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 reform rabbis and the liberal rabbis and the ones who really believe, as I said in the six hundred fourteenth mitzvah, thou shalt be ecumenical, and let's sit down and 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 talk about two different texts, a Jewish text and a Christian text, and try to show how they can cross pollinate each other. That that wasn't us. That wasn't us because there was nobody in the Torah community that's that that stomached them. That's not our derech. We were focused. We're looking for, we're looking for friendships. We're looking to, to take the edge of some of the enmity in some cases. But I would have thought that the last people on the face of the earth to do this were Orthodox Jews. Instead, I found 
completely, completely lehepech, that the people who were best qualified to build bridges, personal bridges, especially with serious Christians, were from Jews. They had a common vocabulary. You were able to look them in the face, as I do all the time. I insist on doing this. Whenever, we, whenever somebody says, you know, we have so much in common, I say, well, that's not why we're together here. I would say that despite irreconcilable theological differences, and get real close, so that there was no doubting about what I meant, that despite that, there is so much that we have to commonly work for, that the culture of the West has turned so seriously against absolutes, that's a, that's a dirty word today, against the idea of divine revelation, even against the specialness of man, which is now seen as speciesism. This is the cultural milieu in which we are living, and we will be for quite some time. And who gets it if not people with a real serious commitment to God? And many of them, millions, tens of millions, have a serious commitment to God, a God who speaks to man, a God who makes normative demands on humans of their behavior, a God who has created certain realities that are absolute and unchangeable. So we have instant communication. Well, you're right. That commonality is is, is definitely there, and it's been mined by not only the Wiesenthal, but it's been mined by... By, by people all forming coalitions, political coalitions, and my good friend uh, Yehuda Levin, who uh, he should uh, he should be gesund, of course had a had a whole career based on that as well. His connections with uh, Christians, specifically evangelical Christians, but you know I, I remember you know uh, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I remember when I uh, went right before I left there to Israel after my year there in 1977. Um, I, I, I decided I needed to go up to Tzfas. I needed to go to the Ariz Mikveh. I wanted to see certain things because I didn't know when I was going to come back again. And I did this by hitching around the country. I didn't have the money for buses. Anyway, um, because I was a yeshiva bocher, I had to suffer the enmity of, of, of the average Israeli who thought I was, uh, didn't know I was an American. He thought I was some you know kid who was not going to the army. But I was able to get hitches, uh, hitchhikes a little bit. And one of the most incredible rides that I got, uh, and I was going with a Kayan, so he was a little bit worried, was we got a ride all around Harazesim. And it was from some, it was from an evangelical Christian who had moved from Arkansas to this area, who had somehow obtained this area of land. And I remember how happy he was to give us this ride, but I remember him saying to us that he wants to be here because he wants to be at the site of uh, of, of of the resurrection. He wants to be there when Jesus comes and when Jesus will return. And, and he was telling us that it's all been foretold. I'm not sure which book he was quoting, but the Jews getting their state back, it's all part of the book of Revelations. And it's going to end with this incredible hisgalus of 
of God in the form of Jesus, bringing everyone back to the main truth of Christianity. And of course, I was just as quiet as possible. I mean, I just said, just get out of here. Just get in this, just get me to Yerushalayim. Okay. I, I, uh, I hope, you know, I hope he doesn't push us out. Now that ride told me, yes, we have partners that will pick us up. We'll do things that nobody else will do. Maybe not even if religious, if religious Israelis will do, but you talk about irreconcilable differences this isn't just a question of do you have to keep the Torah or not, or has the Torah been abrogated? This is about who's God. And, and, and in their sense, their God is the God that's going to turn us all into Christians. And then if we don't accept Christ as our Savior, we are basically damned. So is that a difference that you can deal with? I mean, that's a pretty big difference, isn't it? The the, the people that I've become friendly with and that, uh, that, 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 I, that I call my friends struggle with that. They're not quite so certain about what's going to happen to, uh, to Jews in the long run. You know, there's a, real, there's a real continuum of belief about things like that. You have people in the evangelical world who are dual covenant theologians. In other words, they believe that God had, uh, had one set of expectations for Jews called the Torah, and that remains their way into heaven. And then there's another one for all the non-Jews of the world. There are those who see different kinds of stages, with Torah being one of them, but not never canceling it out. Then you have people who believe that we were replaced. Replacement theology is still one of the things we vigorously, vigorously campaign against. Uh, we're not quiet about it at all. We write about it, and that um, is still out there in parts of the Christian world. And knowing a resurgence because the Palestinians are pushing it when they uh, uh, are when they try to get the uh, support of uh, of liberal churches, they actively push the idea like you guys can't be Christian Zionists, like. You see anything in the Bible and the, the the creation of this accursed state as being something foretold by biblical prophecy? You're a kaifer. You're a heretic. The Jews were replaced. We are the Jews. The new Jews are Christians. Isn't that poshant? So lots of Christians aren't theologians. They uh, they have a real aversion to it, and they they only get little bits and pieces from what they're. Preacher on Sunday will, will, will say, look, you got to be very careful. There's no question you have to be very careful. But there are, there's a billion, 1.2 billion of them out there. I'm telling you that there are tens of millions who are not anti-Semitic, who love Jews because they love Tanakh, because they love scripture. Now, whether this is going to last more than another couple of years, I can't tell you, because kids aren't reading and they don't, they don't engage scripture. One of the things you asked me before about teaching, I don't actively teach. I do go to Christian schools. And, uh, you know, they'll ask me to speak about Judaism. They usually know next to nothing about it. But I will try to show them, I will try to show them how Jews look at Chumash in particular, different than the way than the way they have treated it for past couple of hundred years was they read the Bible often and they study it in their schools one or two chapters at a time and I tried to show them how much you're missing. Do you believe that this is God's word? 
And I tried to take them back to episodes that they know of in Tanakh, stuff that they're allowed to learn because the bottom line there is not uh, this mitzvah, that mitzvah. It's about Amuna, about who HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, who man is. They're so you, you, you're, 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 just, you're justifying, again, just, just, I know what you're doing, just, just to make it clear to anybody who, who is going to be listening to us, you're, you're explaining why there's no problem of being moister divrei teira Chazal say it's Marosha Kiwas Yaakov, that you're not supposed to be moister divrei Torah to non-Jews. So you're saying you're not really teaching Torah to non-Jews. What you're trying to do is... Well, I'm saying I'm, I'm saying a number of things. That yeah. First of all, there are parts of Torah that you're allowed to. Right. Perhaps Torah should not say anything. And Sheva Mitzvahs, but that is enlarged according to some, to all in Yonei Hashkafa and Musr. There are shittas that the only thing that you can teach is Sisrei Torah. Uh, you have the tshuva of the Sri Deish, the more important earlier tshuva of the, the sheet of the Be'er Sheva. There's lots of stuff to talk about. There are things that I don't teach that I will, and that I won't teach. And I've had classes where non-Jews have wanted to attend. And I said, this is not for you. But, but one of the heterim, by the way, of teaching, I'm not saying that's the only thing I'd be samachan, is that it's only gezo if they're taking it and we don't want to give it to them. But when there's a, there's a reason why we want to convey it to them, because it's going to create a positive to, thing. We get we get we get positive things. The Rambam was uh, was even more liberal than that. Rambam was a great hater of Christianity. We don't know if he ever met a Christian in his life, but he had a very very dim view of yes. Christianity. He suffered from the Muslims, but you know he was an Ishemes. He said their conception of God is a a an Achdushen Ladofi. It's the real thing. Christianity he hated. Yet there there are two or three chuvas to the Rambam. When he's asked, are you allowed to teach, you allowed to teach uh, Torah to, to non-Jews? And he said, of course not. It's not for sukkah. You're not allowed to do it. He said, but an exception is Christians. Christians are allowed to teach. Why? Because they're maminim in scripture. They're maminim in mikra. And by teaching them, it's shayich that some of them will see the MS. Vichil Yaakov Weinberg, in, in his Shuvah in the Sri Deish, says he doesn't think that the Rambam meant that they'll convert. He meant that they'll have a different estimation of the Dvar Hashem. And that, and, uh, that, that, that sufficed for the Rambam as a, as a, reason, as a reason to teach. So, so that's, that, and again, just to, as you know, uh, the, the, the uncensored version, of course, of the Rambam in the end of Hilchas Melochim says that it's because of their knowledge of scripture, their knowledge of psukim, their knowledge of neviim, that they will be able to be makabel the idea of the Mashiach, the real Mashiach, in a much greater way. And he says that's part of why Christianity has spread throughout the world. He was aware of how powerful it was, was in order to be machshir, the planet, for the real McCoy. It's, that's the, right and, and I think some of us don't realize today Say, look, you know, they believe in the wrong guy is Mashiach, and they're so wrong, and it's so crazy. And you know what's crazy today? That anybody, in the eyes of, of, of half of humanity, that anybody would believe that there's going to be a guaranteed, a guaranteed redemption of mankind, that there will be a time that guaranteed, not just a hope, but guaranteed you can put money on it. 
that God is going to create a perfect society on earth. Now, do we believe in that? Absolutely. Lahavdil, do they believe in that? Yes, they do. Is that important, even if they got the wrong guy? It's not just like, you know, to reduce it, like the, like the does. They, they know the idea. Today, we see how important it is that people have a grasp of that idea. Because you got, you got all the guys in the, in the, in the, the, the guys who write books in the biological uh, sciences telling us, listen, the universe is, a dead, is dead to any needs of man. Man eventually is going to disappear when the solar system disappears. Nobody will cry for it and there'll be no continuity. There's nothing out there. And so, the idea of messianic redemption, which, which is part of, I'm going to say the words, I believe that it definitely exists, a Judeo-Christian legacy. And people say, I don't know, what do you mean, Judeo-Christian? We believe in the opposite of what they do in so many cases. Yeah, it's true. But there are things that Judaism contributed to world civilization, mostly through the the uh, the, the Christianity. Yeah. Christian, These are Christian. eternal truths about life, about God, about meaning, about purpose, which we share with them. And because we share with them, we can have conversation with them, and they feel an affinity to from Jews, from Jews, no matter how much they stress, how much they find out that we're not going to convert, they shouldn't even bother trying to convert us, but they have this respect for the intensity of our belief. Okay. And so many have to be introduced to it. I'm friendly with a, <laughs> with a pastor in uh, Northern California, lovely, lovely guy, who somehow convinced me while I was in Yerushalayim, he tells me, two weeks from now, you're getting on a plane and you're coming to my community for a Shabbos. Yeah, right. Two weeks from then, I was on a plane going to this community for Shabbos. I was not the first from Jew there. He had, he had food brought up from San Diego by car. He uh, knew about Zaman Tfila. But I walk into, I walk into his, uh, to his place uh, after, after my Suda Lil Shabbos, and he wasn't in telephone contact with the people there. I didn't know what to expect. I walk into an auditorium and we just happened to walk in at one time and there are 500 people shouting Shema Yisrael, Hashem Lokeinu, Hashem Achad, and singing the song. (laughs) In Hebrew. It blew me away. The the numbers went up after that. Anyway, one of the people I was introduced to in this weekend was a fellow from India originally was brought up as a Muslim, and then he uh, became Makuruf to, uh, to Christianity. So he, uh, he, he was on a trip to, uh, to Israel, the first time he was to Israel, with my friend, the pastor, who, by the way, has an entire network of hundreds of pro-Jewish, pro-Israel churches throughout Mexico and South America. One guy whose grandfather started it already when it was really unpopular. Anyway, this fellow says to him, I don't understand why you're so close to the Jews. Jews don't even believe in God. He was good. That's what he was told. Jews don't believe in God. So this, this pastor friend of mine did an ingenious thing. 
He dropped him off at the Kotel at two o'clock in the morning and said, I'll be back in a few hours. For four hours, the guy was standing at the Kotel Plaza, clearly not alone. And there are like dozens of Jews around after that, hundreds of Jews. And he watched people daven. He listened to people. He didn't understand the word, but he knew they were pouring their hearts out to the Rebbein He said, I thought these people don't believe in God. Where do I see this intensity? So there's a, there's, there's a, lot, there's a lot of work to be done. So it's, fascinating. And it's really uh, a testament, not only you know, to yourself, but I guess to the, to, you know, the feeling is still strong and the support, of course, is there. Uh, I, I, let me ask you something. I, you know, as a teacher, we're both teachers. We're both faced with this often. We know we have an audience that isn't necessarily going to accept easily what we have to say, a Christian audience especially. Um, do you ever find yourself engaging in real outright apologia in terms of explaining things? I mean, there's, there might be some person in the class who's done this research, who's gone on Google, who's found some statement, whether it's Toiv Sheba Goyim Harog or whatever it is that they found, and, 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 and whether it's been pushed by yeah. the Palestinians. And then you find yourself in a bind, because if you'd be back in Eula giving shear, you would say pshat k'moshetzorech, like it is. But now that you're there, do you find yourself like interpreting things in a way that you know is, isn't what Chazal meant? But I need to say this, because otherwise I'm going to burn bridges and it, it, it's going it, to, I will never be understood. I just need to, to, to blunt really the subtlety of what Chazal was saying. So, you ever so find yes, yourself doing that? Yeah, yes and no. In, in dealing with friends and people I'm trying to have a Kesha with, I don't think I've ever engaged in it at all. There are things that I've had a hard time understanding myself and maybe I'm an apologist to myself, but I, I don't convey things that I don't believe 100% are MS. That's, diff, that's different from a task I've had at other times, which is countering hardcore anti-Semitism. Every argument that you can find in one of the medieval forced church debates against, against Jews is on countless videos promulgated every day by more anti professional anti-Semites. There are such things as professional anti-Semites. It's a big business than, 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 than we can, than we can imagine there. I think, yes, there is a, there is a Kiev of putting things in the best possible light. I, I have told Talmidim in the past about the Chassam Sofer's uh, elaborate uh, hespid for um, Rav David Sinsheim, known to most of us as the Yad David for all of his svarim on... on, on uh, the Nossi of, of Napoleon's grandson. The Nossi of Napoleon's grandson. Grand Sanhedrin. Which was one of the, the, the most terrifying and crucial turning points really started the modern period going. And uh, if you remember the questions that Napoleon put to the community, sure. is it true that the Jews are not allowed to marry Frenchmen? Right. And what was the answer? So what would we tell Tamito? Of course they're not allowed to marry Frenchmen. What, what, did, what did he say? He said, well, you know, when we marry, we do it in the ceremony. And the liturgy for the ceremony would be totally irrelevant to anybody who wasn't Jewish. Therefore, we don't marry people. Now, is that a sheker? I don't 
uh, the stakes were very high, and uh, Sheikh Sofa praised him for it. Um, so sometimes, yeah, by the way, just for your own uh, edification, uh, Dr. Uh, Yehuda Rosenthal out of Skokie, out of the published um, from a manuscript, a very important uh, rejoinder to that from someone who was invited to be part of the Senator but couldn't, the Zara Emes. Uh, he's known as uh, Rabbi Shmuel Hakoyan, one of the Chidoah's closest friends, uh, who um, who published a more in line, although quite liberal, Torah response to all those questions. So you should check that out. And that was sort of like the the, the responses that perhaps didn't make it. Um, but you're correct. Obviously, I'd, I'd love to see it. Well, what do you? What about Rav Yaakov Emden? Rav Yaakov Emden and his shita about okay. Uh, Okay, about, sheet, about okay. Jesus. Yes. Okay. It was was he was he lying, or did he believe it? Okay, so I've talked about Rabbi Yaakov Emden a lot, and I think he is obviously one of the most interesting and important <laughs> personalities of the 18th century, maybe even for hundreds of years before and after. Um, and uh, you know, there, there is there, the complexity of that person is it, it knows no bounds, really. Uh, he's such a complex uh, person. Did he actually believe what he writes in the Hagos of the Seder Oilam that, and in his Peir Shlechem um, Shamayim on Pirkei Ovos is where he says it in two places where he talks about the fact that it's clear to him that the Neitzri was there only not to stop Jews from keeping the Torah, but he was there to uh, give Sheva Mitzvah over, right? And that's really what he was after. Did Rabbi Yaakov Emden expect non-Jews to be reading his in, uh, what he was writing? Okay, was, he was writing from Mishumotim. He wasn't writing it in in in, a foreign, in, in, in German, right? So obviously, what was, what was his purpose in writing this, right? So, um, which is different than the official answers that Rabbi David Zinzheim was was offering to Napoleon. So to answer your question, I think Rav Yaakov Emden uh, meant it. I think he probably believed it. Um, uh, you know, and uh, that's part of one of the, right, how much are we going to go based on that opinion? Uh, it, it's a hamza, but it's a vilda hamza, right? It's a very wild hamza, but how much does it play a role in terms of our interaction yeah. with them. And I, I don't, don't know if we can answer that. But I, no. I don't mind if you want to ride the, the, the Yaakov and the horse on that. But, um, you know. Look, we know that the, that the Amshel Shlomo wrote that you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to be Meshachir about Torah, even on pain of death. That's right. right. And we know that promotion and Shuvah said that that has not been done, Haga. Right, right. And Ramayshak, right. And again, that marshal is such a chiddush. Everybody uh, quotes it, of course, uh, the Gemara in, in Baba Kama. Uh, in other words, why, you know, you know, why didn't they just, you know, tell them, you know, the, the MS? Why didn't they just be Meshachir? But it, it's hard to know. I mean, it, that, that Yam Shoshlomo, I think, is, um, has been used as a, as a bludgeon against people. And I think it, it, it doesn't necessarily reflect accurately the reality, the way it existed, but you, know, you you have, you have some good you have some good uh, uh, you have you have a good offensive line uh, to shield you, uh, Rabbi Adlerstein. You've, you've, What's you've, that? I'm saying, in other words, just use a football metaphor. In other words, you've got some good blockers in front of you. Yeah, you have, you have some good precedent to allow what you were doing. If 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 you if you do have to engage in uh, you know abject apologia in order to get and, through and, three. 
And I make it a practice of speaking to people that I respect on high, including one person who has a carte blanche. I've given it to him to rein me in at any time and tell me, enough, you're going too far in this direction. Head back. And, and, I, and, and I go every year. I'll tell you one thing that, that I, I, when I was teaching um, day in and day out in the high school, uh, and it's, it's interesting, again, from Jewish kids, what, what I would get from them, and I assume you, you've probably heard this as well, especially in light of the anti-Israel propaganda, which is the mitzvahs in the Torah that seem to indicate genocide, whether it's the, the killing out of the seven nations or the, the killing out of Amalek, um, and um, now this is probably something I'm sure you've had to deal with that question, correct? Um, no, because because Christians have less of a problem with it than we do, for uh-huh. complex reasons. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, of course, it's a problem that uh, that anybody who's whether he's doing interfaith stuff or not, or or in the world of Kirov, just a deep trying to do some deep thinking on his own has to, has to deal with. 100%. And uh, I, I've only found one approach that resonated in part, and that uh, that's a beautiful uh, article written years ago in Tradition Magazine by Shalom Carmi, who is a deep uh, thinker, and uh, besides a very good researcher. Sure. And... Uh, no, that's, that's that's what you're so much on. Yeah. Again, that is I, what I'm so much. I mean, let's just you you and I both know that Rishamshin for Hirsch, even in his in his parish on Chumash, had to restructure that mitzvah of what Zechar Amalek meant, and it's a, it's the idea behind Amalek, right? He he clearly you know defanged that mitzvah. Uh, and, yeah, I don't think he was responding to pressure. I think that uh, he might have believed that in his heart. I think for sure he believed it. The, the old question, you, the Torah tells you don't forget and uh, wipe them out, but don't forget. Uh, isn't that a stira? He was one of many who was trying to answer the stira. I understand. But, but you can but, wipe but, them out is by it, not forgetting what they stood for and uh, understanding what the principles of such a society are and working and working against it. Let me ask you something on that note, because um, and we can wrap this up here. Um, you know, part of, you know, you, we talk about interfaith, and I mentioned before um, the involvement with Syrian refugees, and I was very taken, not so much by the reform rabbis uh, and conservative rabbi stance of opening and, and, and welcoming the refugees. What I was taken by was the sheet of pula between uh, the Muslim community in America and uh, the conservative and reform uh, community. Uh, I was very struck by that. In fact, I felt a, a, a big chizuk that that could happen. And then uh, similarly, when the Tree of Life uh, murders occurred, there was a, a very wonderful statement that was given from the, the, from, the, from the Muslim community in support of the Jews in Pittsburgh and around, and around the world. So I have seen in, in, in many places uh, outside of Israel, I've seen many places there has been a meeting of the minds and, 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 and some support between the Muslims and, and the Jews and, and an understanding of how close we are. You mentioned the Rambam before about how close we, that we, we are in terms of our tefisa of what God is. 
in what you're doing, do you find um, you know, that you have, uh, tell me just in the last couple of minutes here, your connections to the, the Islamic world and the imams, uh, obviously not the radical Muslims who are asking for, who want the destruction of the Jewish people, but there's, there's got to be some Muslims that you have also connected to. So one of, one of the things that you learn is what's wrong with intolerance and what's wrong with prejudice, that you, you look at groups rather than individuals, and individuals will always surprise you. But we have noticed a couple of things. One, that there's some very, very fine people out there. Now, tragically, uh, an imam who was, uh, who was uh, in this current unrest in Yerushalayim um, during Ramadan, there, there were Jewish uh, hoodlums out there from, you know, the extreme right, and they beat up this guy, Imam and his wife. He was on his way to give a lecture on tolerance with Jews. And he's the guy that, uh, that, uh, that they beat up. Um, the, the problem, and then I'll tell you one anecdote, maybe we'll wrap it up there. The problem is that there are people who are spokespeople for seemingly a, a tolerant uh, Islam, but who are just... Uh, giving themselves cover. It's chazrafis. And because we are politically active, we're very, very wary of people who will use an association with Jews or Jewish groups as a way of providing themselves with, uh, with cover. So we have to be very, very careful. And we don't find that there really are so many of these Muslim uh, spokespeople out there. You have them more in Europe. And there, there really is a shituf pula about about Shrita, about, uh, about, uh, about Prismila, and uh, that, that hopefully can lead to some positive things. On an individual basis, though, I'm friendly with a professor, uh, formerly professor at Al-Quds, before he was a professor at, at Al-Quds. He worked for Fatah. He was a student radical leader at university, American University in Beirut, um, then worked for Fatah, was exiled by, uh, by Israel, tossed out of the country, he had to live abroad for a long time. And um, sometime he got, uh, he was allowed back in America, and back in America, back in Israel. And he and his brother, who's also a professor, were in a car with their mother. And their mother um, was asthmatic in the car on a trip, and she forgot her inhaler. And she went into an asthmatic uh, attack. And it was, got worse and worse and worse. And they realized that uh, she's not going to make it unless we can get her some medical help. So they're, they're deep into Israel, not in, not in one of their, their Arab villages. And what, what are they going to do? They had been taught that Jews hate them so much that if they turn to Jews for help, they'll, they'll kill them on the spot. But they said, it's our mother. We have to try. So they were right near the, the exit for Ben-Gurion Airport. And they got off and they went to the, you know, to the uh, security uh, point where they check everybody coming in. And they explained what was going on. They both spoke it perfectly. And immediately their, their worst fears were realized. They were immediately surrounded by multiple vehicles, army, everything else, but they didn't kill them. They were all emergency vehicles that stopped all traffic and worked on their mother for a solid hour. Somebody they didn't know, they didn't know anything about her other than she was a human being who requested help. 
She didn't make it, but it was transformational to him. Everything that he'd been taught about Jews was, huh, why are these people being so, so considerate of us? He had a similar experience later, another one. He turned into a, um, a radical for tolerance. He didn't become pro-Israel. Lots of things that he criticizes about Israel. He's really an equal opportunity critic. He criticizes his own people. His sympathies are still with with uh, with. Runs programs, including a degree granting graduate program in tolerance, not at Al Quds, um, but with a university in Germany. He uh, has two doctorates, multiple areas of competence. He was teaching a number of things at Al Quds, including a class in which he had both Palestinians and Israelis. So part of his tolerance appreciation was that he was going to have the Israeli students spend a few days in Dehesha, one of the larger refugee camps, and the Palestinians he took to Auschwitz. And uh, when he came back, all hell broke loose. There were student protests. They torched his car. There were protests demanding that he be fired. They asked him to resign. He refused. And Sounds that's- like par for the course for the academic, the academic world. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. yeah. Except that right now, probably the uh, climate in America is even more extreme than that. You can see another, that. Com- another conversation, but... Yes. Well, yeah. I, I, you know, I, you know I, I am obviously very taken by this, and, and, and I'm going to give you another charge. You should give them... You, you should, again, you don't have to take advice from me. I'm willing to do research for you for free. But here's a little bit of advice that you might take for free as well. Look, the, the, somehow, I think you're going to find uh, 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 more connections in the Muslim world. There's so many millions, billions of Muslims, I guess, around the world. And I think that many of them need to be connected to and be received. Absolutely. What is the single largest Muslim, uh, Muslim association in the world? Time's up. Okay. It, it's a group in Indonesia, the most populous Muslim country in the world. And there is a group there that preaches and has preached for decades and decades a moderate Islam, not some kind of reform Islam. They claim that it is more authentic than the the, the stuff that's being preached today through the, uh, the, the stuff that the Saudis set up before they have Kharata. Uh, and they are marketing it and packaging it and sending it around the world. I sat down at the Waldorf, uh, had had breakfast with with the head of the organization, took him to our Museum of Tolerance, obviously not open yet, but showed him the facility. And he blew me away with some of the things he was saying about what Islam really stands for and what what, what Sharia really is. And this guy has been consistent. We have sat down with people from Indonesia in particular. We took, it wasn't me, but our organization took, the first to take a survivor of the camps 
to Indonesia to talk about his experiences. So there, there is there's lots of work to be done. There's lots of work that can be done with, with Indian Muslims in particular. And now, now with the Abraham Accords, this is not just a photo op. It is so real. It is scary. It is scary. And, 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 and hopefully in a very, in a very beautiful way, it's going to, it is. It's going to, right. it's going to give you and, and, and all the people that work for you a lot more to do. In, in, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned with, with getting past the skeptics. Yes. Our community who have good reason to be skeptical, but to show them that Chazal had the perfect balance. There's some people out there who believe that every Christian is out to change your, to, to missionize, to proselytize, and to steal your soul. And there are lots of deceptive missionaries out there, no question about it. But they go to an extreme in, in blacklisting and, and uh, uh, finding the worst accusations against every Christian on the face of the earth, especially people who have lived through them and, and then been Megayer. They're usually the most anti-Christian out there. And they say, how can you take any chances? And they're all out to save, to, to, to destroy Jewish souls. And then you have the naive people who think that everybody will love us if we just, uh, you know, have coffee with them. And we find the balance. And the balance is two words that Chazal gave. And there's no better advice than that. It's Chabdeu v'chashdeu. They're people who specialize in the chashdeu and no, there's no chabdeu at all. And the people, it's all chabdeu, and they're naive about the dangers. Both, and you the recipe for success in this. All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank you again for giving us so graciously of your time. I hope that I'm, I, I will be able to do this again. Rabbi Yitzchak Adlerstein, Director of Interfaith Affairs of the Simon Wiesenthal Institute, and, and much, much more. Thanks again for, for, for being with us. And I hope that, uh, uh, like I said, that uh, this is only the first time that we could get together in such a fashion. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 